Hey, uh, Jimmy Valentine, that was a really great game-winning score you had there at the sporting event. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate that. You can look for that card really soon at Colorado Coins, Cards, and Comics. They got tons of sports memorabilia. Jimmy Valentine, RKO Radio News. Jimmy, what makes Colorado Coins, Cards, and Comics your favorite comic store in the Colorado area? I'm telling you, forget about it. A comic collector like me, I can save 20% on a hold slot. Duh. Plus, it's hard for me. I'm on the road all the time. If I want the amazing Spider-Man and I'm not around, it's in my hold slot. Jimmy Valentine, what do you have to say about your recent allegations about steroid use? <laughs> I'm not going to answer that question, but I am going to tell you that if I want to get Magic the Gathering cards, I go to Colorado Coins, Cards, and Comics. <laughs> the little square Jimmy Jr., he loves those. So go to 6700 Wadsworth Boulevard in Nevada, Colorado. They'll take really good care of you. Hold on, Jimmy. One Jimmy, more question. One more question Wait, no, no, don't go yet. For barbecue that can't be beat, try Birdman Barbecue Sauce. Available and original and spicy. These robust, full-flavor sauces have the awesome power to kick your taste buds in their face. And for that smoke and taste on everything you eat, try a new Birdman Smoke and Rub. Caution! Meat left unrubbed may suffer from flavor performance anxiety. You can pick up Birdman Barbecue at local area Ace Hardware stores, Ruff's Barbecue in Golden, and the Danny Cash Hot Shop off-Broadway. You can also like us on Facebook at Birdman BBQ. Does this sound familiar? You're interested in purchasing that new action figure, but aren't sure if it's worth it? Well, come check out PlasticExplosion.com, where you can go to find all the latest and greatest action figure previews and reviews. Every week, they'll be bringing you reviews and picks from your favorite collections, such as DC Universe, Masters of the Universe Classics, Marvel Universe, Star Wars, Transformers, and many more. Come check us out at PlasticExplosion.com. That's PlasticExplosion.com. Welcome to another awesome interview, hopefully, that the Real Nerds did. At, this one's at Mile High Horror Fest. Again, we met Jeffrey Reddick, who is the writer of The Final uh, Destination, the first one. Yeah, actually and just Final Destination, not The Final Destination. Yeah, final de- I always forget that, that, <laughs> that there is The Final Destination. Um, final Destination is written by Jeffrey Reddick, who um, is a really nice guy. Huh. He kind of just came over and we asked if he'd sit on our podcast, and of course he said yes. Yeah. Um, of course, like he's, yeah. Because he, why, very, wouldn't, why he, wouldn't you want to be on this podcast? He very graciously said yes. Yeah, and we had a great conversation. He also wrote a movie called Tamara, which I really liked. Uh, he wasn't as thrilled about it, the final product. Yeah, as I enjoyed it. Um, he also, which is part of what's just interesting about his interview to talk about to because he's to really how he talks honest. about yeah the way things have been changed. Um, and he also wrote the remake of Day of the Dead, which is not good. Which I, I told him, I told him it wasn't yeah. that good. But I, while I was there, he offered um, to, he would sign if you wanted to buy um, his treatments for these movies. Yeah, like he had a booth set up, you could get his um, DVD of Final Destination. He'd sign it, or you could purchase the the script treatments. And I was more interested in the script treatments because I wanted to see how he wrote yeah. the um, the movie. And his original script treatment for Day of the Dead is way better. And I'm I'm just talking in the 10 pages that I read of it had a better thought out story. Yeah. And they changed a lot of it. So that's a bummer. Yeah. And it's, what was so fascinating about him was just how like how nice and understated he is. I don't mean, you'll hear you'll hear it in his voice here in a second. But uh, to, to then turn around and then go like, oh, and then he made Final Destination, the movie that is almost an excuse to just watch people die in horrible ways. Um, <laughs> yep. It's just funny to hear him talk about sort of his little twisted side. And also, because Jeffrey was instrumental in bringing this guy over, in fact, the only reason that Dan Merrick, the director of, well, the co-director of the Blair Witch Project, came and talked to us. Uh, I'll never forget, we you know interviewed Jeffrey, and we're sitting there talking, uh, basically saying, oh, we can't get, uh, Kane Hodder can't be on the show because he has a contract or something, which is fine. Yeah. And we're saying, oh, who else should we talk to? Is there any other filmmakers? And then Jeffrey came up to us and says, hey, I got Dan to come <laughs> over and sit down and talk to you. Well, we were uh, we were eating our burritos or whatever <laughs> yeah. for dinner. And he just sort of like, you know, ran by real quick and was like, hey, Dan's going to come over in a minute and talk to you guys. And we were like, 
Uh, okay. Oh, okay. Oh, <laughs> yeah. sure. Thank you. See, I was I wanted to flag him down and be like, "Do we owe you twelve percent for? Uh, yeah. You know, you're our, our agent now. So we're hooking uh, us up. So thanks, Jeff. Yeah, we that was awesome. That. Um, and Dan was fascinating. Um, oh yeah. It makes me want to go see the Blair Witch Project again. Um, I again, I'm not that big of a fan of it, but talking to him about how he got it going is really fascinating. Oh, you you can't not listen and to it's him talk and for just the time. have so much respect for the guy. And so it made me have a new appreciation for the movie. Um, that I want to see again. Yeah, and um, I, I remember <laughs> the movie not being terrible, but no. not I, in love with it like some people were. But it makes right. me want to see it again. Maybe if I look at it with different eyes, because I saw it, you know, after the hype and everything. So yeah, and part of it is just that uh, from a film historian perspective, it's it's a it's a big deal. Significant. Um, yeah, not not just in the way that it was shot, but the way that it used the internet and all of that, which we talk about in the interview. And it's cool too because he was also really candid when we asked. He said, "Well, what would you have to yeah. do with the sequel? Because the sequel is." You know, like a real movie. It's not found footage or anything. Right. And he said, well, they really wanted to make another one. And we said, okay, go ahead and make it. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah. So listen to both these gentlemen. They're really fun and fascinating. And we hope you enjoy them. Welcome to Real Nerds Podcast. I am Ryan. To my left is James. And we are sitting with... Jeffrey Reddick. Jeffrey Reddick. And now you are a screenwriter, correct? E- correct. And I, I mean, I know what you screen write, but you want to tell the people that are listening to us what you've screen written? What I've screen written? Written? <laughs> written? I'm just making Wrote? up words now. Me too. I don't. Uh, you're the writer. You should tell me that <laughs> I'm stupid. I, I, I have to write sure it out for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, a Final Destination is probably the 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 main one, and um, Day of the, the remake of Day of the Dead, which I'm sure will get boos and hisses from many people. <laughs> but, uh, we can talk about that later. Okay, sure. And, um, a movie called Tamara that oh, you know, I love lines that movie. Good. Yeah. It, I like I, it, it's um I do I, I'm like stuttering. Yeah, you're fine. I, it's, yeah. yeah, no, um, it's kind of like the ABC Family version of the script that I wrote, though. Like that's what I joke really? about it. Like because it was really a hardcore like R movie when mm-hmm. I wrote it, and they kind of watered it down. So I, I really? actually really enjoy it now. Yeah. But Lionsgate originally was going to put it out theatrically because it, it was really edgy and sexy and. You know, they frowned upon it, and um, then when they got the script, they were, or saw the movie, they were like, "Yeah, we'll put it out direct to video." Oh, that's a bummer. Mm. But it's you know, it's it's a fun movie, and Jenna Delon is. is awesome. So I uh, so I have a quick question: Did you come up with the idea of Final Destination? Yeah. Um, where did that come from? Um, um I'm crazy. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, it came. Uh, I was on a plane um, going home to Kentucky, and I was mm-hmm. I read a newspaper article or a magazine article about a woman who was on vacation and her mom called her and said, don't take the flight you're on tomorrow. I have a weird feeling about it. Mm-hmm. And the plane crashed. So I was wow. reading this story. I think it maybe was in People Magazine or something. Mm-hmm. And that kind of got the idea, put the idea in the back of my head about, you know, that's weird. Um, Very. And back in the day, well, you still have to do this, but, but to get an agent, you know, they say write something for a spec script for something that's on TV. Mm-hmm. So I wrote an X-Files episode and used that as the setup for that. We never actually submitted it to the show, but because one of my friends, I worked at New Line Cinema, one of my friends was like, that's a pretty good idea for a feature. You should really try to flesh that out some. So, It's a brilliant idea for a feature is what it is. Because the truth is, I was telling Brad before we started, it's one of the more, it's very honest in what it's doing because it's, it's a great setup for just like, hey, we're gonna we're just going to kill some kids. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Like it, just, yeah. it just works it's out like really well. It's like a slasher movie oh, with yeah. death is the slasher. Oh, exactly. Yeah, and I think it, it taps into everybody's fear of flying. I, no matter what anybody says, I think everybody's terrified of flying. Right. Yeah. And, uh, man, I, I you know, there's so many iconic moments in that movie where, you know, the jet goes by the the window and it and explodes. Splats, yeah. And, um, so, yeah, yeah, so it, that's crazy. Like, I, I wouldn't, that's, I guess you get inspiration from the darndest places yeah, yeah it's funny where inspiration comes was from. it was it a hard script to write um finding out what you wanted death to represent well it was it was a very interesting because i again i worked at the studio that made mm-hmm. it so i kind of had to go outside the studio to get the project set up at the studio so one of my friends worked for uh warren zide and craig perry who are producers they did american pie mm-hmm. um in final destination and they were looking for a horror project so i took that i this idea to them and we developed it over like six months, um, just hmm. as a treatment. And New Line just could not get their could not get their head around having death as the killer. They're like, that doesn't how you know <laughs> how can they fight death? That makes no sense. Um, and so it wasn't until the producers threatened to take it to Dimension that New Line's like, okay, we'll buy it. So oh, they yeah. bought it, and then I wrote the first draft of the script, and then they went out to directors, and they brought James Wong um, and Glenn Morgan from the X Files yeah. on board, and they did a re- you know pretty massive rewrite on it. Um, so and if they did a rewrite, what was your original um, idea for it then? Uh, I mean, a lot of the stuff is the same. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest thing um, was the way that death got them. Because in my version, 
uh, since death kind of fucked up the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, because Nightmare on Elm Street is my favorite movie of all time, the original. And so a lot of my work is influenced by that. And so in my version, Death kind of used each character's guilt, which is kind of what I did in Tamra, mm-hmm. uh, um, to, they, to make them kill themselves. Yeah. So there were, like in, in the movie, like the Alex's best friend gets hung in the shower mm-hmm. in, my, in my script. He rigs up a noose in the garage. And when his father comes home, his father opens the garage and hang, accidentally hangs him. Oh, that's so it's you know it's chilling. It, it's, a, it's a little over. yeah it's a little, it was um, but I think the Rube Goldberg way that um, James Wong and Glenn Morgan went was actually really smart because mm-hmm. it made people start looking for death all around you yeah. sure so um, I, that's that was a change I thought that was actually a pretty brilliant yeah, and uh, and death in it's never really uh, materialized. He's kind of a phantom, correct? Yeah, yeah. And is that something you always envision him as? Or? Yeah, and um, New Line did when I wrote the first draft. They made me at the in the third act, like I had this kind of entity, kind of phantomy thing mm-hmm. show up at the very end for like five minutes, not five minutes, for like five seconds. Sam Elliott in a hat. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. They they did want me to have some represented have some kind of representation of it at the end of it, mm-hmm. um, but James Wong and Glenn Morgan fought not to have that, which I'm glad because it, yeah. it you know you don't death is because yeah, I think it kind of gives it more scary because you don't know exactly where he's at right I mean it because you'd never see him yeah and it's it's like a phantom it's I like guess. a force that's it's like, force yeah. yeah better word so yeah that's yeah man I'm, it's awesome, and then you did the Day of the Dead remake. Yes, I and did. And I, I, I love the original Day of the Dead because it's, it's that's another one where a lot of people don't like it too because it's really bleak. Yeah. Um, but it's, I imagine that was a kind of a hard project to do as well because, well, I mean, obviously they had to give you some sort of directives to write it, or were you given yeah, free reign? No, um, it was interesting because they actually hired Steve Miner uh, yeah. to direct before. They brought the writer on, and they also had a shooting date and a release date set before they brought the writer on. Oh. Which, is always, which is always just how best, you want to work, which right? Is always the best way to make a movie. Um, with deadlines and no ideas. That's, yeah. um, so I, I actually got hired based off a treatment that I wrote that was actually really pretty faithful to the original movie. Um, but then once I got hired, they started making me change everything and mm-hmm. take it further and further away Bummer. from the original. So it was kind of annoying because I was doing all these interviews, like going, "Hey, mm-hmm. the fans are not going to be disappointed. <laughs> it's faithful but irreverent." And then all of a sudden, it was like completely. Did you always have it taking place in Colorado? Yeah. You did? Yeah. Oh, all right. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I'm i not going to get mad at you for it, but, I mean, it doesn't seem uh, – it's not kind of the same feel of the original. Yeah. Um, no, it's – yeah, it's a different animal. I, yeah. I kind of – I mean, I think it's a fun zombie movie, yeah. but I think if it was called – any other movie? Yeah, that's probably why. I think that um, it would have done. You know, people wouldn't start hissing the minute they hear the <laughs> Day of the Dead remake. But it's better than Day of the Dead Two, Contagion. Ah, uh, yeah, it is. <laughs> <by> leaps and <laughs> bounds. But um, I think yes. So, um, what was the original idea then for the Day of the Dead? Um, what did you originally have planned? And um, it was pr- pretty much the same. Because well, it was interesting because the studio had the rights to remake Day of the Dead, mm-hmm. but they couldn't link it to the other Dead movies. Okay. So it couldn't. It was a weird. Yeah, it had to be a self-contained story, and it couldn't. It couldn't. So it couldn't be like five years or ten years into the zombie apocalypse like uh, the original okay. day was. Um, so I came up with this whole virus idea in this town, but I basically had everybody underground in the bunker at, oh, the, yeah. you know, at the beginning of the second act. And, and it, a lot of it was experimenting with Bud trying to find a cure. Oh, um, and, you know, <laughs> Logan, like, tormenting him and, mm-hmm. you know, and the zombies are outside. And so it was, it kind of followed a lot of the format of the original, but there was just some more, there was more action in it. I was yeah. just curious, too, because I think one of the biggest detractors from the original is nobody likes the characters in it because they're all horrible people. Um, right. Did you write it as the people are more likable because even in the one they they shot i think ving rames is pretty good in it and yeah you know you like the people so it was that's yeah, something you're going for too uh, yeah and i but i and i always try to make characters at least relatable um, and likable like i you know you always want to have somebody that you love to hate but um but yeah you know it's it's actually funny because i didn't even think about that in the original that yeah, the characters are pretty. It was a bunch yeah. of assholes stuck in a they bunker. Are. They're horrible. Um, I didn't even think about that. So, oh wow, yeah, uh, yeah. It's just I mean, no, I did. Wait a minute, I thought about that intentionally <laughs> and um, totally wanted to um, make people cooler. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, what are you? Are you writing anything right now? Um, I'm working on a couple of um, horror projects. So, um, one's called Dead Awake. It's about sleep paralysis, which I'm really excited about. We have oh. a director who's Ooh. hopefully got getting the financing together. Um, by the end of the year, and another project called Good Samaritan. Another super, I'm very supernatural horror guy. Cool. Um, and we're trying to get the financing for that as well. So it's you know it's it's a funny business because everybody's always you know 
you've got something and you just got to wait and see if it happens or not. So, Do you mind if I back up for a second? Do you, yeah. What was your first thing you sold to, how did you get to work at New Line and what's the first writing thing you sold? Oh, um, well, the New Line story is actually pretty funny. I was um, 14 years old. I'm not going to take you through like my whole life, don't Okay. <laughs> but, you, you know what? You can. We're but, cool. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I was 14 and I saw the original Nightmare on Elm Street movie and totally blew me away. It's still my favorite movie of all time. And, um, I went home and I banged out like a prequel idea and found out the name of the studio from the video box and called and found out the president's name and sent him the prequel idea. <laughs> and I got one of those, we don't take unsolicited material, you know, letters back. Yeah. And so I wrote Bob Shea back and I'm like, uh, listen, sir, I spent $3 on your stuff so you can take five minutes to read my story. <laughs> and, um, oh, yeah. And Stand up to Robert Shea. I know. And, and, he wrote, <laughs> and he wrote back and he said, he said he appreciate. I, I forget how he said it. I have the letters, but he, he appreciated my... Um, not my surliness, but my um, gusto. Yeah, <laughs> and he actually read it, so I became um, hey. I became pen pals with his assistant and him over the years. Oh wow! Um, and his assistant's name was Joy Mann, who I uh, she pa- recently passed, but just mm. a sweet sweetheart. Um, and when I was 19, I moved to New York and I got an internship at New Line. So I started working there. Um, the first thing I actually got hired to write was, um, and it didn't get produced, was Pumpkinhead Two, which I love the script that I wrote, but the company that had the rights to it, like. They had me and another writer write, write a script, mm-hmm. and then they didn't go with either of them, and they, the rights went to somebody else. And Bummer. Yeah, so um, I really like my Pumpkinheads script. <laughs> I still love it. But well, you know, they still make them, so you could still, you know, Yeah, mine try was to kind of a going. direct sequel to, like, oh. the first one, you know. It, so you need Lance Henriksen, basically? Yeah. And if he's not in it, Well, <laughs> it, yeah, it was like kind of, you know, Haggis was kind of, the, the witch was in it, but it kind of told her backstory, and then kind of set up one of the newer characters but Bunt the kid that helped Lance Hendrickson you know like told him uh-huh. where the, like it was 10 years later and so he's like 19 and he goes home because his father's sick and his friends like decide to surprise him and go back to his place because they've all done this they've all gone to each other's hometowns except yeah. he's never invited them to his place so they're like oh we'll mm-hmm. surprise him and they go back and you know somebody dies tragically and Pumpkinhead gets Pumpkinhead you know how, comes back well, he, well, Pumpkinhead you know how he is <laughs> so do you mind if I ask you what do you remember your idea for uh Nightmare on Elm Street prequel? You know what? No. And it <laughs> pisses me off because I never knew I'd be talking about sure. it. And I wrote it on that, like, back, I typed it. It was like that really thin, I don't know how you guys look young. I'm 43. How young are you? <laughs> uh, I'm 31, Younger. so I'm not Okay. <laughs> well, they had this, like, really th- super thin, like, paper that you used to type on. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I had it on in that, and I lost it. I don't, so I don't know what, I, re- I don't remember any of it, except I remember it was a, Freddie was like killing people, and then in the la- at the very end, they he got burnt. You know, mm-hmm. it was it was kind of a typical sure prequel. You know, fourteen year old like <laughs> yeah. You know, I just didn't know how dark you're going to be at fourteen. You know, yeah. is he the molester at fourteen? Um, <laughs> yeah, I did have him. Mol- yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, and I I, 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 I haven't been molested, so so that's good to know. You know, just mostly most <laughs> normal people have the darkest uh, minds. I found out. You know, yeah. Well, that's what's funny about the horror crowd is um like they're the nicest people. Like you meet all these people. It's yeah. like Kane Hodder and you is know all these people that you think would. Or it would just be crazy, and they're not. Because I'll be honest, you're like the really nice guy, and that you wrote really macabre stories is kind of you <laughs> yeah know, uh, uh, taken aback. <laughs> yeah, oh, I can act a little fucked up if you want. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, you can say whatever you want. Yeah, we're we're, we're explicit, and we're on oh. the internet, so you're we don't edgy. have to listen to the FCC. Yeah, fuck you, FCC. Y- yeah, fuck you. <laughs> We get a fine from the FCC. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so was it the swearing? It was just that you got mad at the yeah, FCC. Yeah, we got mad at the FCC. Yeah. <laughs> what, what is your writing process? What makes you connect with something right away? I mean, obviously you said the People magazine story, but do you find something in a script? Do you find the ending first and then write the, or um, I usually the find the, try to. I usually kind of come up with concepts first, and then I used to... I used to write treatments, like 12-page treatments, mm-hmm. which back in the day you could do because studios develop stuff, but they don't really develop anymore. So um, I still kind of have that mentality of, like, writing the story out first, but it usually starts with an idea that I think is interesting. Like, mm-hmm. sleep paralysis is something that has a lot of history to it. Um, basically, when you go to sleep at night, your brain shuts your body down so you don't act out your dreams. And sleep paralysis happens when you wake up, but your brain doesn't turn your body on. So people wake up paralyzed and their brain starts getting flooded with like, you know, their neurons are like, you know, Mm -hmm. flooding their brains with images. And people report seeing like, you know, somebody in the room with them or somebody on their chest choking them or, you know, some man in the corner. Um, So there's all this mythology behind it that um, I thought was really interesting. And it was based on a true phenomenon. Um, And my script, Good Samaritan, is, is... kind of based on the Kitty Genovese story. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Hmm. Um, it was um, in New York, and this was 
back in the 70s, I think, maybe, or 60s. But this woman was um, attacked and raped, like, in the courtyard of this apartment building. And nobody helped her. Oh, like, and, and the guy left and then came back later and found her in a stairwell and killed her. And they've done all these studies. Apparently, they found out people had, some people had called the police, but it turned into this whole big thing about how could this woman be killed yeah. and all these people stand around and not help. And so there's this whole bystander effect uh, theory among psychologists that if you get a group of people together and they all witness something, people are kind of freeze and wait for somebody else or think wow. somebody else is going to do it or wait for somebody else to do it. And I've, that story's always haunted me, and so I kind of... Yeah, you, that's a horrible story. I know, it's a horrible... And, and, I, and, I, and it doesn't exploit that story, it's, uh-huh. but it's about some people who witness a guy getting assaulted in a park and don't help him, and somebody videotapes the assault, and it gets out on the internet, and so the city turns on the witnesses, and they start dying, and you're not sure if it's supernatural or if it's a real killer after oh, them. That's a great idea. Um, so yeah, I'm ex- I was excited, but you know, it's it's been a tough it's been a tough sell because it's you know they're like, why don't you just go make it like Final Destination? I'm like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's you know that's probably a, a big. I don't know if you'd say it's a cloud over you, but I mean, yeah. Final Destination's so popular, yeah. and because you probably get credited for every Final Destination, correct? Yeah, I get based on characters created by, which basically means since death is the only character left, I created death. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank uh, you. Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> but that kind of that has to be kind of uh, a thing where they say, "Well, you, you made Final Destination. You can make another teen slasher movie. You don't have to." Yeah, well, they, it's funny because at, at first they were always like, "Bring us something like Final Destination," mm-hmm. and then I would bring them stuff like, and they're like, "Oh, this is too much like Final Destination." And then, <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, and that's why I went and wrote Tamer because I, I finally I just wanted to write something fun mm-hmm. that was had everything in it that I liked about horror, and and that's why I wrote Tamer. It's kind of a you know, screw you guys, I'm going home. Yeah, <laughs> I'm do what like, I want. <laughs> I cannot write another Final Destination right now. Um, but um, I th- actually, I think um, the sleep paralysis script could could be. Yeah, that sounds like a terrifying thing too. And it's and it, and it, a lot of people have it. Like in you know, since researching it, I've I've talked to so many people who've at least had it once happen to them, and it's you know where they just woke up and couldn't move. And it freaked him out. Oh, but other people have had like everybody out. Yeah, and um, and we kind of set up this whole thing that once you learn about what's behind it, it's you open the door for it to come after you. So yeah. hopefully, well, there's a there's a really good uh, this is it, there's a really good episode of This American Life where they talk about this. And this, there's this girl who's talking about how she she gets sleep paralysis, and she says that when she told her mother about it, her mother said, "Oh, you know, it's just the devil sitting on your chest." Yeah. And she said that, cause, and it's an old it's an old legend. Yeah. That that's what's happening. But she said that as if like, well, that'll make you feel better. Yeah. It's Today, just, say, the devil's just, just sitting on, on your, your chest, chest. Yeah. when you wake up in the morning. That is hysterical. Yeah. Yeah. It's they call it the night hag syndrome a lot of times because a lot of people see this old woman sitting on their chest, like choking them. Um, Crazy. So there, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of mythology. It's very fascinating. Very. That's fascinating. very fascinating. I'm just fascinated listening to you talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you have a couple million dollars? Um, uh, so I, I do. Make- you can tell by my sweet setup here that I I'm, know, just, that's I'm just rolling. What, I, that's why I rolled over here because I'm like, this is the sweetest podcast setup I've ever seen. Oh, and you hey, guys look like real nerds. Oh, hey, we are real nerds. Pun intended. Pun intended. <laughs> See, okay. Yeah. I thought I, I thought I wasn't going to be on, but apparently I'm a little funny today. You, you know, you are awesome. No. So, <laughs> is there a place where we can find you online? And I. I feel like a twin girl when I say this, but um, I'm on. I just tell people to Facebook me. Sure, I'm a Facebook whore. Like I, I haven't set up a website or anything, but yeah, well, yeah, but Facebook me. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> Makes me feel young. Like, hey, <laughs> Facebook me. That's we, what all the cool kids are doing. Is there anything you want to promote while you're on here? Um, no, I just no. no I you know it's a. Like I don't know if any of those projects are going to move. Or <laughs> yeah. I don't. Know what's going to well, happen? I hope with they them. do because but, they yeah. sound incredibly fascinating. Yeah. Well, thank you. And, no. Uh, you know, um, I you really made uh, like Final Destination was really fresh. Yeah. And uh, hell, uh, you telling the stories about you're making now it sounds like more fresh horror ideas, and that's awesome. Yeah. Because the the genre the genre really needs fresh takes every once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. No. Give you me. know, I just appreciate the fans. You know. Yeah. Obviously, that's the biggest thing. Like. And I'm glad you didn't come up here with like a torture porn movie. So that's, oh. that's good. <laughs> uh, that was my next movie. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Did I just crush you? <laughs> <laughs> but I wasn't going to tell you guys about it. <laughs> I was going to say since you're since you're credited with uh, you know death as a character, can you go 
I think you should be able to go to any studio, and if they have death in a movie, you should be able to take I credit should, and I, get a piece of that script. I should start suing people. <laughs> that, <laughs> that is should. awesome. Some like really fancy dramas. It's like, well, that character died a... Uh, meet Joe Black. Bite, yeah. Yeah. Sue Brad Pitt. That's awesome. How, yeah, how, I need to totally do that. How did you promote your new movie? Oh, I, I sued everyone in Hollywood who was yeah. making a horror yeah. movie. Yeah. I uh, haven't totally been able to get my Hollywood. next movie made or any of them made, but um, it was fun suing people. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for stopping by, sir. All right. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Take care. Oh, my gosh. Welcome to another exciting filmmaker interview on Real Nerds Podcast. I am Ryan. This is James. And we are sitting with... This is Dan Myrick. And, Dan, what did you direct? You directed one of the most influential horror films of all time. Yes, I directed The Exorcist and The Shining. (laughs) So um, we have Stanley Kubrick here, and um, he has risen from the grave, and it's it's really awesome that we're able to get him on. It Um, is a horror fest. It is. (laughs) So crazier things have happened. No, actually, Dan, you've directed The Blair Witch Project. That's right. Um, Was that 99? Is is that correct? It it came out officially in 99 through 2000. But we actually shot it back wow. in 96, so that's how really? long it took, yeah. Is that Damn. how long it took you to finish the movie and get it released or noticed? Yeah, well, it took us almost two years to edit it. Wow. Okay, so I'm going to back up a little oh. bit. So what it, What was the genesis of the movie? And um, Because now found footage movies are the coolest thing that's happened since I don't even know what. But you're kind of the... I don't know. I don't know if you're the first one. It has to be one of the first. Well, we weren't the first. I think we we found out later on. There's a there's a film that was shot back in the '70s called Cannibal Holocaust. Oh yeah, and it was <laughs> the same kind of premise, um, found footage movie. But but yeah, I think we just Blair, which has just popularized it. Yeah. yeah, you know. But we weren't original with the with it was that kind of premise. It was something of a phenomenon. Just, you know, that coupled with sort of the hype around it and the the mystery at first of whether or not it was real. All of that combined. Yeah just sort of ballooned it into something huge. Yeah, I think we were the first that kind of did the internet marketing factor fiction, surrounded that whole thing. Which in a way might even be more influential even than the found footage stuff was. I mean, that that gets pointed back to quite a bit. Um, Yeah. Anyway. So how did it start? Did you come up with, uh, you guys come up with the idea of just this videotape that was found and it was scary? Or how did that happen? What, What was the... Well, I mean, both Ed Sanchez, the co-director, and myself, we were big fans of of those old series like In Search Of mm-hmm. and Legend of Boggy Creek, which oh, was yeah. kind of a faux documentary about Bigfoot, and um, and we always liked, you know, we were kids when we saw those films, but they, how they came across as being authentic and real. Mm-hmm. So we always wanted to do something that kind of played on that part of our brain, and I was sort of notorious when I was a kid for doing hoaxes and stuff about, you know, fake aliens and stuff in my neighborhood. So it kind of, that was sort of the, 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 the fertile ground where Blair Witch came out of. And then um, we said, well, why don't we create some kind of weird folklore in the Maryland area, which is where Ed lived at the time. Um, and one thing led to another, and we discussed about, you know, making it about these three kids that went out to, sh- to shoot something, something that we would have done, you know. And yeah. they disappeared and all, the, all that's left is their film. And... And because we were kind of getting into the video age, then we could get a lot of stuff on video and use that as a lot of our material. So, um, so you know, one thing leads to another, leads to another, and you build on it, and that's kind of you know um, how it kind of took shape. But originally, it was just being fans of those old kind of you know TV series with Leonard Nimoy and and uh, those old kind of fake documentary shows. That's really cool because you know the movie starts off just basically like your normal documentary, yeah. and then it kind of just takes. Unusual turn after unusual turn, mm-hmm. and obviously that stuff was pretty planned out. But the immediacy of the the dialogue seemed almost like it wasn't scripted. That that's it just happened there, and this is what's happening. Uh, maybe you can elaborate more. That's how yeah. I felt watching it. Is, yeah, is that we, something yeah. true or not? No, it is true. We 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 kind of dubbed it method filmmaking. Basically, uh-huh. we wrote a script without dialogue, and um, we auditioned actors for over the course of a year that had to have really strong improv skills so our whole imp- our whole um, audition process was improvisation you know an cool. actor would come in with a monologue and we'd say throw out the monologue and we'd run them through drills to see how good they how well they thought on their feet because we knew when we got them in the field they needed to be able to think on their feet so we wanted to control the narrative but have them talk 
and react to each other very naturally because that's the first giveaway for us in a fake documentary is that everything seems scripted and the camera's yeah. conveniently at the right spot. And, and even if you're not a film enthusiast, you pick up on those cues, you know. And oh, easy. So we tried to make it as much like a documentary as humanly possible but still control the narrative. And even with the actors, when they came on set, we gave them profiles of only what their character would know. So we gave them backgrounds of, them, of their own characters. Um, you know, Heather had a background of why she was doing this with this documentary, but the other two guys, both Mike and Josh, didn't know why they were out there, so they, we wanted them to ask her. So, was, so we got a lot of very natural dialogue that way, and um, we were able to control things throughout that process. We had to reset, do other takes and stuff like that, but for the most part, we got a lot of really good, good moments that looked natural for it because of it. That's crazy. So they, so you shot the the movie, and I mean the the scene. The, obviously, the most famous scene I think is when Heather she's crying in the camera and saying, yeah. "I'm sorry for this. I'm sorry for that." Yeah, yeah. And that was all improv. Yeah. Well, the scene was was scripted. We had that in the script. Uh huh. Um, but it was a beat. It was like Heather goes off by herself mm -hmm. after seeing the stuff in the sticks, and this is what we called the confessional. It's your mm -hmm. time now to confess that you really fucked up and you got it and this may be the last moment you're on camera so go do it and then mm -hmm. she made up the dialogue but we set the stage for her to, to do what she needed to do and she just came through with flying colors that's so cool because i mean obviously you guys didn't have a very big budget right so by not shooting certain elements mm -hmm. you kind of made your mind play with you saying well what did i just see am i those sticks you saw for sure yeah but what what brought them there? What are they running from? Right. You know, it's. Uh, I thought that was such an effective way of making a film yeah. because it just touches a certain nerve with you because your mind because you don't know what the the witch Blair Witch looks like. Yeah. So now you're thinking about her, yeah. and uh, and that's a really interesting technique that I think a lot of uh, filmmakers don't take advantage of. Is well, the thing is, is the power of suggestion is incredibly intense. You know, if if you can plant some something in someone's mind. Before it happens, what they conjure up is going to be a, usually a lot better than what you can, <laughs> yeah. you know, put in a in a in, in, in a dummy form or even CGI. So, um, and you know, our limitations, our budget limitations, probably worked for us in that regard. So, but we were very conscious about if you go back to the beginning of the film, we were setting up that power suggestion, setting up that story, the backstory, what was going on, the interview with Mary Brown at the beginning. Yeah. She did that little kind of creepy horse lady story we're just laying the yeah. groundwork for the audience and then the audience did the work for us down the road with, when things are bumping in the night now everyone's yeah. thinking it's you know it's the Blair Witch to and me, when that's pretty just, ingenious because you're right I could never uh, my head of the Blair Witch would be different than yours yeah and if you just set up just the little things in it then your mind will just race all over the place right so that's cool and it so at the end of the movie too, I think is kind of a controversial part too of the movie. Yeah, is you know they all go in the basement, they face the the wall, and then the camera tips over, and that's right. the last thing you see. Is that the last thing you scripted, or did you have something a reveal there, or anything maybe well, a little it, tidbit that you can relate? It's it's relate funny. It? We Ed and I didn't have the ending to the movie until like three days before we started shooting. We weren't sure how to end the film, and you know we set this whole kind of fact or fiction premise up and we wanted to kind of walk this line between believability so we didn't really want the witch coming out at the end or <laughs> yeah. some monster or whatever that would blow the whole thing right so how do we have a somewhat like what the fuck moment at the end a satisfying yeah. ending but not betray the conceit of the film so yeah. it took a long time for us to kind of figure that one out so we opted we had you know different versions of ideas of, of, of Mike doing a bunch of different things, but we, we opted for him standing in the corner, which was just kind of creepy. Yeah. It's something you don't see hits them and it ends. And it's funny, like, two years later, after we sold the movie, Artisan Entertainment at the time tested the film, which they normally do. Yeah. And most of the audience didn't know what the ending meant. They were, like, confused. They were scared by it, but they were confused. So hmm. Artisan had us go shoot five new endings really? for the movie and um and we were still broke at the time so like, we'll give you some money or okay we'll go shoot them <laughs> <laughs> so we went up and shot them because we were broke um but it was pretty cool but we shot five different alternate endings really they were all pretty bad you know mike was all bloody there was one version of him on a crucifix <laughs> you know we had all the 
and none of them worked, so they opted them out. They, you know, they threw them out, and they went with the original ending. And 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 strangely enough, that's one of the most talked about aspects of the film is that ending. And it's just one of those things that you really have to kind of go on instinct. Uh -huh. And it's you, and and there was an interesting thing at one of the one of the um, screenings that when their audience was asked whether or not they understood the ending, most didn't understand it, but then when they're asked if it scared them, everyone raised their hands. So that's really, at the end of the day, what you're trying to do, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. So, you know, sometimes you don't know why, you're <laughs> but, just scared, right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, after three years, how did, like, how did you, like, why did Artisan pick you up? Like, obviously you were shopping around a lot. Like, yeah. what, what convinced them to take it on? Well, Artisan had just done had released Pi the year before, which did pretty well for them. Yeah. And um, and it was like five to eight million dollar release, which was huge for that little nothing indie movie. And um, so they were kind of on a roll. Um, and when we screened at Sundance, we had sort of the usual suspects kind of circling. Miramax was there and, you know, New Line, a couple of others. But what we liked about Artisan is that they kind of really gave us a, a strong pitch on how they wanted to market the movie, and they embraced our website that we had built and kind of our underground plan that we were going mm -hmm. with, and so they wanted to kind of take that up a notch and go out to college campus screenings and stuff like that. So we really, really liked that enthusiasm they had for the film and that they were going to get very creative with the release and really get behind a theatrical release for it, where we weren't sure if we were going to get treated the same way at Miramax. They might have just bought it and stuck it on the shelf, you know, so we heard those horror stories, so... We went with Artisan, and they they paid you know a reasonable amount up front, and they gave us you know a, a decent back end, and and then the movie just blew up, and it was just you know beyond anyone's expectations. Well, they had definitely had a, like amazing marketing campaign. It was yeah. great, yeah. John Hegeman, who was running the marketing department at the time, um, did a wonderful job going to college campuses. They cut the trailer, um, and it was and they took our website and kind of made it you know basically worldwide you know mm -hmm. so they did a great job and embraced they embraced the film I mean it's so it's it's hard to see that nowadays you know so many films um, don't fit in a nice neat little box and you really have to kind of understand the personality of the film and the demographic for that film and build a marketing campaign around that and sometimes it takes time to build that and it's just not done that much anymore did you know you had something special when you made it, or was it was it a project where you wanted to make it was like a, a labor of love, and then that artisan picked it up. You had a party, and you're like, finally, someone got what I wanted out of this movie. Or, um, or yeah, I mean, it's hard to say special because you know when we were young, stupid filmmakers, you know, we just had our our circle of friends, right? Like anybody does. And when we pitched our idea, people liked it. So mm -hmm. oh, we think this is cool. And they, oh, this is great, you know? And so in our small little sphere, it was doing really well. And then Ed and I had a discussion. So, well, this might, this we might have something here. And it wasn't until we got into Sundance that we started getting a real taste that this could be bigger than we thought. But still, it was pretty contained. It was a festival, darling. We yeah. sold. We were very happy. We thought we might get a really good TV deal or something or a limited mm. theatrical. Because, you know, I mean, the reality is it was a movie shot on high eight. And it was very yeah. small, no actor, I mean, no names or anything. So we were realistic, you know. But it wasn't until we got into Cannes where it went international where we said, okay, this could be something special. This could be something wow. bigger than we had thought. I didn't know. It went into Cannes. Yeah, it went into Cannes. The director's fortnight. Wow. And um, it's, then we're starting to get interviewed by you know New York Times and places like that, and we're on a we're on a panel with Ron Howard. Like, what the hell are we doing? <laughs> and then it started getting a little surreal. And and yeah. but um, but so yeah, it just kept building and building and building. And it was just one of those things, one of those kinds of movies that come along where everything sort of intersects and it and it worked out. Well, we we've talked to a lot of uh, filmmakers here who are, you know where you were oh man 15 years ago mm -hmm. um, where they're trying to get money made or you know they've made made a short film and they're trying to make it longer and things like that right uh, and you basically just told us that it took you two years to edit the movie and a year a year to get it sort of made and all of that how during all of that time was it like just a passion project you were doing in the free time that you had how are you how did you even like get the money together to make how do we live you know, the little yeah exactly yeah like what did you have to do did you just do the Kevin Smith thing and just take out a bunch of credit cards and charge it all we, to that, well or what? a little bit of, of, of all of the above I mean yeah. we we 
had friends give us some money. Um, we had a little bit of investment from some from some friends, um, credit cards, and I, ironically enough, um, we were working for Planet Hollywood at the time, <laughs> cutting their videos for inside the restaurants. Oh. You know, like Wesley Snipes videos and yeah, stuff like that. Right. We were doing all those. Oh yeah, I remember Planet Hollywoods. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. The money we were getting for those, we were putting into our movie and wow. also paying our bills. And, and um, so it was, yeah, it was a real struggle. That's why you have to kind of spread it out over two years. You know, yeah. you just can't do, you can't take six months off and do your movie. You have to do it in between the lines, right? So, um, so yeah, it was a little bit of friends donating, credit cards, whatever we had left over for cutting Planet Hollywood videos. And we just pieced it together. And, um, and again, fortunately for us, Blair didn't need a lot of money. You know, yeah. we weren't trying to do Star Wars here, right? <laughs> so, um, but, um, but you know, it, we finally got it done. And um, the biggest expense, quite frankly, was back in those days, you had to strike a print to get into Sundance. And that set us back like 90 grand, you know, wow. just to be screened in Sundance. Where now I say, you can, here's a Blu-ray and you're good to go, <laughs> yeah. right? So, um, and I think like the next year or two, they they started accepting digital submissions. We're like, God, you know, <laughs> that investor got a lot of money, you know. But um, but yeah, it was it was um, a little bit of everything. You just have to find a way, you know. Uh, were you involved in the sequel at all? The, our only involvement with the sequel, Blair Witch Two, was um, initially they approached us to write and direct, and, and we felt it was a little too soon. And um, so. Um, they got Joe Berlinger in, who's a great documentarian, and and um, and did a script that we felt kind of broke the mythology. But we trusted Joe, and and Artisan wanted to kind of move it into production real quickly. So we said, "Well, you guys do your thing. You have our blessing." Um, but we were a little concerned about it kind of being self-referential because it kind of talked about the movie in the movie, right? Yeah. But um, and I, we were feeling. I mean the. You know, Blair Witch just went kind of berserk. You know, it was there was so much hype, and it was just so overboard. And we were like, kind of think it should cool down for a year or two. But artists said, no, no, it's you know we got to do it now. It's strike with the you know the iron's hot, right? And I'm like, well, if that's what you want to do. So it was a little tug of war there because we were wanting to wait a little while. But th so they put it out fast, and and um, and it didn't do as well as the first one. But I mean, what would? You <laughs> yeah, know? I mean, that's kind of. You know, kind of hard to, to match, but um, but yeah. So then it came out and it did what it did. We were kind of disappointed because we just felt like they should have waited a little bit. And well, I was um, confused by why is it um, you know not a documentary style? Why is it so like that was their choice? That was their choice. Actually, the first you know several minutes of the film starts off like a documentary, which oh yeah. this is cool, you know. But then it goes into normal movie mode, and we're like, yeah. oh, no, you know so. So that was that was Joe's choice, and that was what Artisan wanted to do, and, and no we just felt like they didn't it, understand yeah. the, what the first movie did. And, yeah. and, and as much as um, you know, I respect those guys. I, I I felt that it was kind of made for the wrong reasons. You know, it was yeah. it was one of those things. Is you know, Blair, which you know, had we pitched that to Hollywood at the time, nobody would have made the movie. It no. was just something <laughs> completely out of left field. So, you know, it's just one of those things, you know, you deal with it and you move on. But, um, but we have a sequel idea that we'd like to do and, um, I dropped my, my cat, but, um, but we, yeah, we have a sequel idea that we'd like to do and think it could be cool and, you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, so what else are you working on other than that? Is that the only thing you're working on right now or what else you got? I've uh, got a couple other projects, um, in the works right now. One's called Under the Bed. Um... And real briefly, it's you know about a true story about a guy that uh, gets the keys from this girl and moves into her house and lives under her bed, and videotapes everything she does. And um, so it's a very Hitchcockian kind of hybrid, you know, every everybody's worst nightmare kind of That's movie. That's a little creepy. A little creepy. <laughs> um, and there's another film called Kabori House that I want to shoot next year based on this Romanian folklore about this deformed child that lived in this old house in Romania that uh, is rumored to be a ghost, but it may not be. So so a couple of horror films. And then I've got a comedy that I'm working on <laughs> called Rimco, which is uh, a spoof on, on um, a lot of those old uh, Ronco commercials and, and uh, salesmen 
um, like Billy May and all that. It's about this fictional business run by this family that uh, they're trying to sell all these goofy products. So it's like office meets Spinal Tap. So it's kind of nice. really, really whacked out. So, so all over the map, but, you know, having fun. <laughs> you you got to. You got to keep it fresh. Uh, so, you know, I, I was just, I'm going to go back to Blair Witch. I remember, because I'm such a horror movie fan, that the moment it caught my attention mm -hmm. is I remember all the actors were on Jay Leno. And, yeah. And uh, at the time, no one knew that, they, everyone thought maybe these actors weren't alive. Right. Because like it was a snuff that, film or like something. A, you know? Yeah. And so, <laughs> yeah. you know, so that's when I knew the it was a big movie right. and a big deal because uh, the mar going back to the marketing, um, did you tell them to market it that way? Or was that something they came up with saying, hey... Let's have this website. Let's pretend it's completely real. And well, as filmmakers, we we started the website. We let the website be um, within the the context of the narrative that it was a website about us, Hacks and Films. We found this footage, and if you wanted to be immersed in the narrative, you could do that. But whenever we did an interview, we always talk like we do now. We always explained it was that it was fictional how we shot it, that the actors were all cast and all this and that. So we never tried to fool anybody um, in the press or the, or the audience if you were listening. Sure. But we made that there was enough of a kind of arm's length detachment from the marketing campaign and what we were saying to the industry that um, if you didn't want to get any spoilers, you didn't have to. If you didn't read Variety or any of those, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know that it was fake. So... Um, so Artisan kind of just embraced that and said, you know, that's what we'll do. We'll just kind of play the actors as if they were, you know, not around. So they kept them hidden for a while. And then they, and then they came out with them once the movie started blowing up. But um, so they walked a fine line with that. So um, as filmmakers, we were able to kind of have, the, you know, plausible deniability that, sure. you know, we, we, we weren't trying to you know, pull a hoax. That wasn't the intention. We didn't want to get sidetracked with, with trying to fool people. We just wanted it to come across to feel real. That was the whole, the aesthetic of it feeling real was different than trying to, to pull a hoax. So what you did is basically said, oh, no, it's not real. But you didn't deny people's minds to work yeah, in the way, like in the movie the works, yeah. you know, it's saying. That was oh, part of the intention of the narrative. That, like, that's pretty you, awesome. You need to kind of think and feel that this is um, playing on that part of your brain, you know. And, and, and we theorized, because we didn't know at the time, but we theorized at the time that We've got a generation of people growing up on CNN coverage, you know, videos, stuff starting to get posted to the web. And there's a certain realism with that, that that just operates in a different part of your brain than seeing something that's slick and you know that, that mm -hmm. it's Hollywood. So we didn't want to break that break that for the audience. So we, we try to keep them compartmentalized. So our, this is how we did it over here, but we let it let it play out over here. You know, this might be a silly follow-up question, but I don't think that would ever work nowadays with with Twitter and how big the internet is. I mean, because I mean, I don't know. You tell me. You were you were uh, in it. Um, do you think something like that could possibly work I'm, nowadays? I'm always pleasantly surprised. You just never know. Someone comes out with something completely new. They blow everybody away. They rewrite the rules. So I'm always a big believer that never say never. You know. I don't think another Blair Witch would work necessarily because I think audience is a lot more sophisticated now. Um, a lot of people are trying and, and, and fall victim to that conceit, I think. I'm certainly not going to try it, you know, really again. <laughs> but, um, but I think another format, another form can come out and do that. I think there, there are ways to, to, to um, get people to buy into that narrative. We just haven't thought of it yet, and somebody else will. It's well. just, you know... The closest thing is the Joaquin Phoenix rap movie. Um, <laughs> yeah, oh no, that one. Guess, yeah. That one had a hoax for like a year and a half. Yeah, but that blew up in it? his face. Though. Oh yeah, yeah, no, no, it didn't work, and nobody liked that movie. But it's still like they had people convinced for a little while. Yeah, and I think part um, of the issue there too is that they're you know we we let the press in on it early on. Yeah, and we allowed them to be in on kind of the on, on the conceit, so they. They were real friendly towards us, and they wanted the movie to succeed because it was so different. It was so anti-programming or counter-programming to Hollywood, and they were kind of in on it. So they embraced it because of that, I think. So until later, then everyone <laughs> then it was fashionable to hate it. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just the way it is. <laughs> so I mean, you don't have to reveal this part too. So you said you're working on a sequel to it. So would mm -hmm. you still do it as found footage at like maybe a different time, or would you try to shoot it a little differently? I might. You might not want to reveal it because well, you're working I mean, we, on it. We struggle with that a lot. We, we definitely think there, 
we have an idea for a found footage version mm -hmm. of the movie. Um, but we also like the idea of exploring the mythology that we've created. There's like, I mean, I have a fantasy about doing a whole Rustin Parr movie of just that house of Rustin Parr and those seven kids, yeah. you know, maybe all black and white or something, you know. That'd be awesome. So it's just kind of like we've, we've created this whole world that we could explore that are all part of the Blair Witch universe, but it's not necessarily a found footage film. There's an episode that takes place out there every 40 or so years that you could do a movie around, a period piece even, of a prequel or what have you. And I think the fans would embrace that. I think, oh, this is part of the overall mythology. It's just like Star Trek or anything else. Let's go explore the Klingons. Let's go explore sure. this. And it could be a lot of fun. But I think there's room for another found footage version of it, definitely. Um, I don't think you're going to fool anybody in thinking it's real. Right. No. I think that's the, the wrong approach to take. But again, as an aesthetic, I think it could, it could work. Yeah, I think it too, because I think you're right. I think the mythology is so rich in just that one movie that you can go in so many different directions yeah. that... Uh, yeah. Uh, someone smarter than me, like you, can think of something to do for it. Uh, is there a place we can go online to find you and uh, check out what you're doing? Well, my company's GearheadPictures.com, and uh, you can kind of see stuff, you know, there. I also have a Facebook account, just Dan Myrick, and um, and yeah, always updating on what's what we're doing, what we're into, and um, and like I said, these other two films that we're working on, we're hoping to be coming out with those, um, start shooting those here sh soon. So. Cool. Awesome. And well, thank you so much for taking time to yeah, talk to us. Great. I'm always surprised when we get like real filmmakers <laughs> to sit with us and, and are so awesomely nice. We really appreciate no, it. No, I love this stuff. This is what kind of keeps me grounded, you know, and, yeah. and it's very easy. I was telling Jeff that it's very easy to get cynical in Hollywood and kind of, uh, uh, <laughs> and you come out to festivals like this and like, this is where we were just a few years ago. And this is great to get this energy. You know? Yeah, I know. I, I told him, I said, man, we're going to have to give you like an agent fee for uh, <laughs> setting interviews up for us. <laughs> yeah, you just came, just came running over. He's like, oh, Dan's going to come over and talk to you in a minute. I'm like, oh, oh cool. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. right. Let me put down the burrito. One way Hold into on. the door. And that's, uh, that's all I would be an agent fee because I actually set up something for you. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. Yeah, my agent. So. <laughs> Thanks, I really appreciate right, so man. much, Dan. Thank Good you talking so much. to you guys, man. You too. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you. Thanks again to both Jeffrey and Dan for sitting down and talking to us. Again, I'm always humbled by a filmmaker sitting and talking to us. Yeah. It does my heart good. <laughs> and it's just such an interesting look into, you know, the way their sort of perspective on things and gives you a different appreciation, especially of a movie, you know, if it's if it's a movie that, you know, you're like, eh, whatever, and then you hear them talk about it and you realize, like, okay, this is where all of this comes from and, and, and you, it completely changes the way that you look at movies sometimes. I agree. So next week we'll have another one, maybe two of them. Depends if uh, we got to kind of yeah. figure out exactly how we want to put it out and how long they are. So thank you for listening. This has been another Real Nerds interview. Bye. Bye.